I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Um, I've been to Ireland over 14 times in my life. Uh, if you put together the time that I've spent there, it's, it'll add up to a little over a year. Um, I think it's one of the most beautiful places in all of the world. You know, as you see the, the rolling green hills and the, the sheep and the stone walls and the, the cliffs. Uh, but one thing I've noticed there is that many of the locals, not all of them, but many of them don't even notice it anymore. And I can remember one of the times I was there in a small town called Port Rush in the, uh, one of the northernmost parts of Northern Ireland. Um, we're sitting at the edge of a cliff there and we're looking at the sunset and we're over the ocean and hearing the waves crash in on this big cliff. And I'm, I'm saying what any normal person would say in a setting like that is, you know, this is, this is beautiful. And uh, the teenagers that I was with, you know, they're all wearing black, they're all very drab, and uh, they're probably also half drunk or stoned. And they, they, they kind of raised their, their head up a little bit, looked out, and they just said, no, nah, it's crap. It's crap. And, and it's because they live there, and they, they've seen it their whole lives, and it's lost its beauty. And, and I think we're in danger of that in looking at this text. Um, It it is one of the most glorious texts in all of the Bible. One of the most beautiful texts, yet it's one you've heard about, one one you know so well that it's kind of lost its luster. And, And so my prayer for us is as we are reading through this, that God would enable us to once again find what we have treated common as something beautiful. Begin reading chapter 7. Verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But with my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Pray with me. God, I ask that in this moment you would press into us the importance of this. That the truths we would hear, they wouldn't just echo around in our head, but they would find a deep root in our heart. God, these are life-changing words. I pray in this moment that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. When we come to this text, this is the most that God has taught since Mount Sinai. And just that alone should give us some inkling as to the importance of this. Um, It's not an exaggeration to say that this is the most crucial chapter in all of the Old Testament. Um, Kind of the analogy that I have in my head is, is what the Declaration of Independence is to Americans and in finding our identity. 2 Samuel 7, this text is the document, is the passage in which we form our identity as citizens of heaven. It shapes us. It shapes everything that we see and everything that we know about Jesus. You can't know the life of Jesus unless you understand what's going on in this text. For instance, his birth. When Gabriel comes to Mary to tell her that she would have a child, this is what Gabriel says to her. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him a throne, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You can't understand Palm Sunday apart from this text. When when Jesus came into Jerusalem the week before He was crucified, people were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. You cannot understand the resurrection of Jesus apart from this passage in 2 Samuel. In Peter's first sermon he ever preached, after Pentecost, he says this, he goes, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried And his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. In Paul's first sermon he ever preached in Acts 13, he says this, And as for the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken it in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. If you were to go to the very last words Jesus speaks to us in the Bible, it's steeped in an understanding of this text. Uh, Jesus says in Revelation 22, these words, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Surely I am coming soon. And so Jesus' birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His coming to gain are all shaped by this text. You can't understand any of those events apart from what's going on here, what has been promised to David. So let's take a closer look. We saw last week that David has just been established as king over Israel. Um, He has successfully brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem that he has just made his new capital city. He went in the years after this to build him a grand palace. He's brought to Israel a time of of relative peace. There's still some Philistines on the outer boundaries, and there's still going to be a few more battles to fight. But but David has brought stability. And during this time, David approaches this prophet Nathan, who we're just now being introduced to. He approaches him and says, hey, it's... I'd like to do something for God now. Now that I'm established, now that I have my own house, my own palace, I would like to make a a huge donation and I would like to make God a house. And Nathan did what I can only imagine any pastor who would have somebody come up to them and, you know, open their wallet and say, I just would like to write like you an enormous check if I can. For you, maybe to make some facility improvements. Heck, buy an entire new place to, to help support the ministry. Can, can I do that? And you say, do, the Lord is with you. Do as, as he has put in your heart. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's what Nathan says here. But, it, but that same night, God spoke to Nathan and said, no. you got to tell David, No. By that, it says that same night God did this. God didn't wait any longer. And that's not how God normally acts in situations like this. Usually God lets people make mistakes. God would do things like let uh, King Saul uh, go ahead and make a sacrifice before Samuel the prophet arrived. Or he would let King Saul go ahead and go into battle before he should have. Or he would let Uzzah reach out and touch the ark. Usually he lets people go ahead and make their mistakes, but he doesn't do that here. God has to correct now. Because something is going on here that is way too important for it to go on even one more day. And it's this. God wanted to remind David who he was, and their relationship. And that God is a God of grace. 
Now listen, David is going, he has made a lot of mistakes in his life, and he's going to make a lot more mistakes in his life. He has already sinned a bunch, and he's going to sin a whole lot more. He's going to commit adultery, he's going to commit cold-blooded murder, and yet none of those sins would damage his relationship with God like this one. None of them would. David doesn't see the danger here, but God sees it. He says, David, you're on a precipice. You're on a precipice. And if you cross over this line right here, you'll lose all of your ability to have any kind of relationship with me. Don't cross this line. And this is the precipice. The precipice is is David is now beginning to think that he can do something for God. He can now do something for Him. He's beginning to believe that that now He's great enough. Now, Now He's good enough to finally give God something of worth. David thinks he can no longer... He can now become the the giver in their relationship, and God for once can become the receiver in their relationship. And let me tell you, if you ever believe this, you lose all ability to worship God. You lose all ability to even relate to Him. You can't understand Him. Because we, one of the first things you have to understand about God is God is always the giver. And we are always the receiver. And when David begins to reverse these roles, God has to you know, have his DTR with him. He has to once again define the relationship. This, this is how it works, David. And so he tells David, hey... Do you remember what you were doing before I got a hold of you? Do you remember what you were doing before you became king? And you know, read verse 8. In verse 8, he says, Thus say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David, nobody followed you, you followed sheep. You, you, you were a nobody until I got a hold of you. Then look at verse, verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. David, are, are you beginning to think that maybe you killed Goliath? Or are you beginning to think that all those military victories were, were from you? Do you remember Goliath? He was huge, okay? You just had a little rock. I killed Goliath. I saved you from one stray arrow. I saved you from one slip foot. It was me who gave you those victories. And then God tells David, this is how things will always be. He reminds David of everything that he has done for him, and then he looks into the future And he says, this is what I will do. I will make your name great. I will give the people of Israel a place of rest. I will give you rest from your enemies. He goes, I will, I will, I will. David, you do nothing. I'm going to do everything. I love you because I'm a God of grace. 
I don't love you because of anything you have done or will ever do for me. You see, that the precipice that David was on, that the danger that he was facing was he was beginning to act like all the other kings acted when they came to power. One of the first things every king would do is that they would build their God a temple. And it would establish them firmly rooted as king over the land. And it was kind of this tit for tat. It was, okay, God, I'm going to build you a house. And in return, you shower blessings on me. And if I can, you know, give you a, give you a life of luxury, maybe give you lots of gifts of gold, maybe give you lots of sacrifices and stuff like that, then maybe, you know, you, you could pay back the favor and you could give me some more victories in battle. Maybe you can make it rain. I scratch your back, God, you scratch mine. That's what all the kings did. And that is religion. That, that, that's how all the religion Religious systems of the world operate in that you're going to scratch God's back and He's supposed to scratch yours. You do your best. You live a good life. You tithe. And then you expect God to bless you. And that is the basis of every religion. And God says, don't you dare treat me like that. Don't you dare treat me like one of those so-called gods. I am always the giver in our relationship. Now listen to me. You never outgrow this relationship. I know you want your kids to kind of outgrow that at times, and when you give them everything, you give them everything, and you're hoping that one day they might clean the kitchen themselves. You, you long for that day, but, but, but we're, not, we're not like that, all right? You, you never outgrow this relationship. I, and I know it's so hard to communicate because I know as Christians, you know, yeah, we're saved by grace, yada, yada, yada. Heard that a thousand times before. And you understand it. But you also need to understand that like David, you are so tempted to want to give God a favor. You're so tempted to try and reverse this because it's the default of your human heart. I know a number of missionaries who uh, pretty much left everything you know, behind here, went overseas. And they did it because they thought, if I do this one great work, you know, if, if, if I really if I sell everything and I, and I go over there, then God will surely love me more. Certainly God will love me more. Uh, certainly my, my prayer life will deepen. Certainly I'm going I'm to feel more joy in worship if I do this, this one great act. And they go there, and to their horror, as the, the months go by, they realize they're the exact same person there as they were here. If anything, their worship has gotten colder. Their prayer life has become even less heartfelt. And the reason is they thought, like David, if I, if I could just do this one thing for you, God, then, then you'll reciprocate, right? You, you'll, you'll do something a little extra for me. 
Now listen, if missionaries can make this mistake, you can make this mistake, okay? Your relationship with God is based on grace. It's not based on any work. God loves you because of the work of Jesus. Period. Not because of any work that you might do, no matter how great or no matter how small. And this is why God has to correct David immediately. He can't wait on it. Because you can't relate to God any other way. David can commit adultery and he can still have a relationship with God. David can commit murder and he can still have a relationship with God. But if David ever approaches God as being the giver, he cannot have any relationship with him. He always has to come needy. Now, I realize that I am um, pushing this truth on you. I realize that. And the reason I'm taking time to do that is because our culture pushes every day the other direction. Your heart pushes the other direction. Shoot, many churches, many pulpits push the other direction. I think Paul was warning Timothy of this in 2 Timothy 4. When he said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, you got to love that term, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, there's a lot of ways to scratch itchy ears. Um, Most people assume that itchy ears want nothing more than maybe this uh, feel-good, easy religion that you can do whatever you want. It's really soft on sin. It's really soft on works. Yet that's not the case. That's certainly not what I've experienced, and it's not what Paul had experienced. Paul spent most of his life actually fighting people who would do any work, any single work to add to the gospel. That's what he spent his life fighting. He fought the party of the circumcision. He fought legalism. Anybody who would add any notion to the gospel of grace. The itchy ears that Paul is talking about is those who want law. They crave for law. They want to be told what works they could do. How can, they, how can they perform more to make God love them more? What great work can they do to have more intimacy with God? Those were what the itchy ears wanted. And that's why both Paul and both Jesus had their harshest rebukes for those who did the most work. For the Pharisees. The people who were so righteous, they would tithe even of their herbs. And Jesus would rebuke them. When Paul preached the gospel, so often people responded this way. They would say, so what you're saying then, if I understand this right, is I can do whatever I want. I can just keep on sinning that That grace may abound. Is is that what you're saying? And then Paul, he he would have to correct that. That's not what I'm saying. But he preached grace so much, so much. That's what people often took away from it. Now I hear more and more sermons 
especially from the Bible Belt, which are so works-oriented that it leaves people with the opposite question. Question totally foreign to Paul. Questions like, what radical thing must I now do in order to prove that I love God? Tell me what it is I have to do, and I'll do it. I have heard from the pulpit pastors saying that we need to establish God's kingdom, that we need to get out there, we need to do works, because we are kingdom builders. Matter of fact, I think there was even a VBS one time called Kingdom Builders. But hear me, Jesus never, never says that we build the kingdom. He never talks about us establishing the kingdom, furthering it, building it, extending it. Jesus never uses that language. This is the language that he uses. When he talks about the kingdom, he says we are to wait for it. We are to see it. We are to enter it. We are to seek it. We are to receive it. Once again, when it comes to the kingdom, God does it all. He's the giver. We are the receiver. I hope you're asking the question right now, so are you saying we don't have to do any works? Are you saying we could just live however we want to live? Sin, so that grace might abound? No. If that's what, what you think, then you don't understand grace because grace changes you. It changes you and it brings you to a place where you're going to joyfully serve the Lord. Um, this is the mental picture I have. You know, picture, uh, picture a father telling a child, I want you to sing for me. And if you sing good enough for me, you're going to earn my love. So sing. child's going to try pretty hard. Picture another child in which the father says, I love you unconditionally. No matter how you perform, no matter what you do, you will never, ever lose my love, and I can never love you anymore. Would you sing for me? That's the song that you want to hear. Not a song that, that's sung in order to win love, but a song that is sung because it has been loved. Because you have received. And when you have received grace like this, you understand that God is the one who God is the one who gives. It frees you to serve in a way that the law never could. You'll actually be doing more. You'll be singing more. You'll be giving more. You'll be serving more than you ever thought possible. Grace will set you free. Well, that's pretty big. The next thing that God says is staggering. There's simply no way I can do justice to it. It's actually kind of liberating. No, at this point, I'm going to fail as a pastor because I cannot do justice to this. God tells David, you want to build me a house? You want to build me a house? This is how it's going to work. I build you a house. You don't build me a house. And I'm going to establish a dynasty through you. 
I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom that will never, ever end. And, and notice, when you read through that covenant that God gives with David, there is no if. It's not if you do this, if you do this, then I will establish it. There is no if. There is no condition. It's I am going to do this for you. You do nothing, I do everything. And this is so unexpected. It's so staggering. Because, I mean, David, he's, he's, he's approaching God with this desire, okay, I really I want to build you a temple. I really want to do this good thing for you. And God says, uh-uh. I'm going to build you a house that sin can't destroy. That, um, that your, your, your life, death, can't destroy. That time can't destroy. This kingdom will never end. God says that death cannot destroy this kingdom because God's going to raise up a descendant of David to sit on the throne. He says sin cannot destroy this kingdom because if any one of your sons sin, I'm going to treat him like my son and I'm going to discipline him. I'm going to correct him. I'm going to bring him back, okay? And time's not going to destroy this because there's going to be no end to this kingdom. It is going to last forever. And of course, we understand in this, we see Jesus so clearly. So clearly. Because all these things are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. David's descendant. Who, who forever defeats both sin and death and rules forevermore. Jesus. And that's why every Christmas, we know we bring out Isaiah 9 and we love to sing it or to say it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, David's just a little tiny player on the world stage, okay? He's just a little king in a new little kingdom here. He's a, he's a nobody. And then God gives him this. I'm trying to think of examples. And once again, I said I would fail. This is the example that, you know, came to my mind. It's like one of my children coming up to me and saying, God, I, or God, that's how they, I've taught them to talk to me. <laughs> coming up to me and saying, Dad, I know you've been working really hard, and so um, I made you this coupon. It's good for one free back rub for five minutes. And I'd say, thanks, but how about instead I take you to Disney World for a month? It's kind of unexpected. Kind of, kind of blows your mind. There's not really a, a, a category that they can even process. That's what's happening to David here. He goes to God, I'm going to build you this little something. It's like, no, uh-uh. Dynasty forever. Once again, this sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Because no other religion has a hope like this. This isn't some 
pie in the sky you know, kind of hope. This isn't a, you know, someday our souls are going to go off into the clouds and uh, somehow live forever. This is the hope of a real kingdom with a real king who will reign forever and ever. This is a real hope that you, you, you can put your whole life on. You can hang your whole life on this hope. You know, every year or every four years when we have all these elections and people get so worked up over who's going to be the next ruler of the free world. Like all their hopes and dreams are anchored on that. It's not. This is where we anchor our hopes and dreams. Those, those presidents, those kings come, go. Kingdoms come, go. But this lasts forever. This is hope. And living in light of this hope allows us to endure any hardship that comes our way. It allows us to do things like forgive our enemies or bless those who persecute us because we know that someday we will have no enemies. Someday we will have no one who persecutes us. It allows us to be free with our possessions because we know that someday we're going to live in a kingdom in which we will never know want. It allows us to be free with our time because we know that someday we're going to live in a kingdom that never, ever ends. This is a hope that changes everything. Let me end this way. In light of this this covenant, this passage we read, in light of being reminded that we worship a God who is always the giver, and being reminded that one day we will have a king come and establish His joyful rule over all the earth forever. I want you to hear again the the passage that we started the service with. Isaiah 55. Which talks about how we approach God. We come with empty hands. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast Sure love for David. Pray with me. Our Father, You are always the giver. Every good and perfect gift comes from You. We always are the receivers. And the reason You have set it up that way is because the giver is always the one glorified. So God, we say give. Thank You for Your never-ending luxurious grace that has been lavished on us. May that free us to serve and free us to sing. May this be a rock. May Your covenant with David be the rock on which we build our lives. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our present and our future 
king. Amen.